My racing career isn't just about me. It's about the team, the fans, the sponsors, the families, the tracks, the whole sport. Join us over the next five months on the Junior Nation Appreciation Tour, where we show appreciation to where it's owed. This is Dale Jr., and you're listening to Dirty Mo Radio. I was happy for Dad after it was over and he had won, but I don't like to finish second. This is the Daytona 500, and thank God! It's an accomplishment that we'll not forget. There's a lot of satisfaction in winning the championship. Jeff Gordon out of turn number four. He will lay claim to his first ever Winston Cup victory, and it comes in the Coca-Cola 600. Rick Hendrick, uh, hope I'm with you for a long time. At the end of the day, you still want to see a lot of people in those stands. I am history. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Back in the day, with Steve Richards and Ron LeMasters. NASCAR history is a rich tapestry of speed, personality, and great racing. Here at Back in the Day, we celebrate that history by keeping it alive, just like Dale Earnhardt Jr. did on the original TV show. We'll take important dates, races, and trends in NASCAR and pass them along to you. Here comes Back in the Day from the Exalta Studio inside Junior Motorsports. Richmond Raceway, as it is now known, is one of those tracks that has always been, or very nearly always, on the NASCAR schedule. It began its life a lot farther back than you might think. The area, known as Ginter Park, was home to the Deep Run Hunt Club, which held a somewhat annual steeplechase race for horses there beginning in 1898. Following World War II, the Atlantic Rural Exposition built a new fairgrounds on Strawberry Hill, which is a site that Richmond Raceway actually sits on today. With it came a half-mile dirt oval suitable for both horses and horsepower. In 1946, the legendary Ted Horn won the first auto race on the surface for Indy-style open-wheel machines. Two years later, the Strawberry Hill track joined NASCAR, and on October 12, 1953, Lee Petty won the first Grand National event there. In 1968, it was paved, and 20 years later, in 1988, it was reconfigured to its current three-quarter mile D-shaped oval. The Sawyer family, led by Patriarch Paul, oversaw that transition and remained at the helm of the track until it was purchased by the International Speedway Corporation. The family influence remains to this day, as does the historic nature of the ever-improving facility. At the height of its prowess, when nearly 110,000 fans jammed the track, Richmond Raceway counted as the seventh largest city in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It is known for tight racing, no little bit of contact, and thrilling finishes, like the one in 1986 where Dale Earnhardt and Darrell Waltrip tangled in turn three with two laps to go, and Kyle Petty won his first NASCAR Cup Series race, driving for the legendary Virginia-based Wood Brothers Racing Team. Did you see the crash? No, I was I was in the middle of back stretch, and I seen the smoke. I just run up on Daddy and them, and uh, him, and I guess the 10 cars, Sachs and those guys, was trying to just feel my way around them to finish the race, and look down the corner, and I seen a yellow bumper, and I figured it was uh, Bodine's or, or, uh, or Earnhardt's. I didn't know which one it was, but we were fortunate, real lucky today. Dale Earnhardt, what was your view on what happened in that accident? Just hung up with old Darrell. We got in the wall. Close racing all day. Do you think it was going to come down to that? I was, you know, I was hoping we could race on, but uh, we just hung up. Congratulations, old Kyle. You know, you're sitting in the right place at the right time. Who do you feel hit who on that last thing between you and Darrell? I just racing. I ain't going to, you know, me and Darrell's got to race week to week. There ain't nothing to it. Okay, obviously not too anxious to talk about it too much more. In June of this year, it was announced that the track would be known as Richmond Raceway and would undergo a $30 million renovation to its infield areas. There are many more memories to share, and we will get to them shortly. 
first, let's saddle up the old time machine and take a trip back in the day to 1953. It was the golden anniversary World Series, and it was a golden experience for the baseball fans of America who followed Casey Stengel's drive to his fifth consecutive world championship. The New York Yankees beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in six games to win the World Series title. Working at Pittsburgh University's Virus Research Laboratory, a 40-year-old Dr. Salk labored three years, often 16 hours a day, six days a week, to painstakingly perfect a vaccine. Jonas Salk discovered the polio vaccine. I really had no idea that the, uh, the media and the public uh, would find it all that interesting. Sir Edmund Hillary ascended to the top of Mount Everest, the first to ever do so. Among those born in 1953 were funny man Tim Allen. <laughs> they might be going to call George Brett out. Well, he is. He's out. Yes, sir. Brett is out. Look at, look at this. He is out and having to be forcibly restrained from hitting plate umpire Tim McClellan. And the Yankees have won the ball game four to three. Baseball star George Brett. You know something, Vince McMahon? One day I may retire, but it won't be until I kick your And wrestler Hulk Hogan. Higher compression, triple side draft carburetors, and dual exhaust give her 160 horsepower. Boy, what a car. 1953 was the year the iconic Chevrolet Corvette first hit showrooms. Only 300 were made, all with polo white exteriors and red interiors, and they sold for $3,490. Among those who died that year were do-everything athlete Jim Thorpe, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, and country music legend Hank Williams. Your cheating heart will make you that gets us back to Richmond, where you'll never be cheated by the racing. It's one of those tracks where something always happens. And one man who has been there for a lot of that action is Steve Richards, longtime broadcaster and pit reporter for the Performance Racing Network and the producer of Back in the Day. Richmond's a great place to race, isn't it, Steve? Absolutely, Ron. I mean, it's one of my favorites to go to. It's the perfect racetrack. It's the action track, as they used to call it. <laughs> and uh, a lot of drivers say it is the perfect racetrack. It's not too big, like a super speedway where guys can get away from you. And it's close quarters racing. It's not the little bull ring like Martinsville, but it is a short track where there's bumping and banging. And guys can pick out uh, a line they want to run. There's two and three grooves, or can be three grooves, at least there was for several years. But uh, it is a great racetrack, and Richmond is always one you want to put on your calendar and go check it out if you've never been there. It's great racing. It is, and, and one, of the, one of the key things, when I first went there, which was the first race after uh, it had been redesigned into the, the track it is now, mm -hmm. I'd never been to the fairgrounds track. Neither had I. And, yeah. and it, was, it was just awesome because it races like Michigan with a very much uh, higher gear ratio. <laughs> mm. because you have to come off turn four and you are hammered down. You go out to the wall, you come down. It depends on how your car is running. Right. Now it's very tough on brakes because you have to, it's a long break into turn one. Mm -hmm. And then turn two is calamity corner, as they like to say. Right. Because uh, it shortens out pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and quickly. And then you're into three and it's, it's just hammered down again. Now you told the story earlier about how Richmond was reconfigured. Mm -hmm. Daryl Waltrip had won 
several races at that place. Right. And when the Sawyers decided to reconfigure the track and build it to pretty much what it is today, Daryl Waltrip back in 2003 said he about cried. I remember when Richard Petty got on the bulldozer down in turn four, and I almost I was crying. I said, man, they can't do that. That's, that's my, I love that racetrack. They can't do that. And the, the, the most amazing thing that I've ever seen in racing was that was in February. We came back here in September, and they changed everything but the zip code. I mean, you wouldn't have known you were at the same joint. It was a brand-new facility, finished, complete, ready to go racing with suites, big grandstands, new racetrack, the whole nine yards. That was quite an amazing feat, particularly when you tell people they need to do something to their track and they don't, you know, take some years to get it done. Always, always remember, Paul, you can build a whole racetrack if you want to. Paul Sawyer, of course, who right. should be in the Hall of Fame at some at some point. I think they need to put a promoter's wing in there if they if they don't just do it automatically, just for contributions to the sport. Because Virginia is such an important part of the NASCAR constituency, I guess. A um, lot of your lot of your good drivers come from Virginia. Mm-hmm. The Wood Brothers are from Virginia. But uh, you know, you look at what Richmond has meant, and for the last several years, it's been the cutoff point for the chase. Mm-hmm. So that's it's added importance. I'm really glad they do it on a short track because it would be kind of a downer to have it, you know, like at Charlotte or Texas. Not to bang on Charlotte or Texas, right? But because I think it's a, it's a real racer's track and you and you have to earn it. Our buddy Elliot Sadler, of course, from Emporia, Virginia. This is true. Denny Hamlin, that's mm-hmm. his home track as well. Right. Sadler says it's always been special to him. I'm still a fan of this place, and I know when I go in the, when I'm making laps, I know it's a lot of people there from South South Virginia that I grew up with and, and, and big friends with that have come here to see a great race. And uh, yeah, this place is uh, very special to me. I, 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 you can come anywhere you've been going since you were a kid, and you get to go back and race. Uh, it means a lot to you, and um, that, that's why I, we, we, we always come here like a day early, just kind of hang out in Richmond and see a lot of my friends before we get started. Can't tell Elliot's from Virginia, can you? Mm, no. <laughs> of course, the Burtons from Virginia yeah. as well. Right. On the right. other side, mm-hmm. sort of, kind of. Ward from the south, south side, south side yeah. of the house. <laughs> Jeff from the north side. North side of the house. North side, yes. Yeah. And it's funny because most of the people in his family talk like Ward. Right. Not like Jeff. Right. So Jeff is the odd one out. Exactly. Ward is a great guy, and, oh, and yeah. it's not so much how he says it, it's what he says. Got to see Ward at Bristol. Really? Yeah, he did a press conference for the uh, Ward Burton Wildlife Foundation. If, mm-hmm. you, if you've never checked it out, feel free to do that on the Internet. But, uh, yeah, he and his son uh, Jeb were uh, talking about the Wildlife Foundation and maybe trying to get uh, Jeb some more seat time this year. But uh, Ward's great. Right. And uh, Jeff's son, uh, Harrison. Yeah, is, uh, making his way up right. through the ranks. Yeah, yeah so we're going to have two more Burtons. Oh, man. But neither one of them have the accent, so we're going to have to work on that. <laughs> Play De- tapes. Denny Hamlin, of course, he he was thwarted several different times in winning a cup race on his home track till it finally happened in 2009. Like a Daytona 500 win for anyone else. That's just, you know, I mentioned before that you know, I wanted to win this race before I won a 500, but now, of, of course, you know, I know how special that race is to everyone, but, you know, this one in particular to me was, uh, especially after all the heartbreak, it makes it uh, more gratifying to win now. And uh, it's by far the biggest win in my career, and, you know, hopefully it goes a long way for this race team over the next 10 weeks. That didn't go quite as far as they would hoped. No. But still, it was a great victory for Hamlin, and he's been very, very good there ever since. The races that he always focuses on are Richmond, of course. There's uh, Bristol because it's on the border of Tennessee and Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Martinsville. Yeah, yeah. So you want to sweep home bragging rights, and, and you want to – and he's just always got an extra little chip on his shoulder for there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Not that he needs one. Didn't Casey Kane win his first race there? I believe he did in so 2005. Did t- so did your buddy. That's right. Yeah. Tony Stewart. Yeah, Tony Stewart did in 1999. Tony remembered that night fondly. Leading 333 laps of that race and having to race Dale Sr. and Jeff Burton, Mark Martin, Jeff Gordon, uh, Bobby Labonte. I mean, that's that's a pretty big group of guys to have to fight for a win all day. But uh, to win that race, get our first win, and have Bobby Labonte, our teammate, run second to us, it was a, an awesome first win. I was in victory lane when Tony, because I was working PR for yes. Tony, when, and he finished second right behind Casey. And I went over to Victory Lane with him because that's where he went. And, you know, as a PR guy, you've got to go where the driver does. Sure. Well, that it doesn't exclude the men's room. Uh, well, uh, or it doesn't include the men's include. room. Include. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> Let's get that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it, it, Richmond's a great track for first-time winners. Mm-hmm. It's a great time. You know, Kyle Petty. Now, Kyle Petty benefited from the fact that Dale and Daryl, who are no strangers to uh, rearranging sheet metal, <laughs> crashed. Uh, that's not – and Kyle went on to win about 10 more. Yeah. Or I guess eight or 10 more. And, you know, that that's – it's just kind of the way things happen in NASCAR. And I really think that Richmond – now, that was on the old fairgrounds track, mm-hmm. which was basically Martinsville, just uh, a little bit bigger. But I think, you know, Richmond has always been one of my favorite places to go. It's a great place to, to watch a race. We used to stand down in the tur- – in between turns three and four during hot laps or – or during the NASCAR Xfinity Series race, mm-hmm. and just watch those guys work. Mm-hmm. And it was phenomenal. I mean, the amount of of movement the cars would have, you wouldn't think they were going that fast, but they average about 121 miles, 122 miles an hour. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and the key is momentum, and, the, and you, have to, you have to be in the gas when you don't want to be in the gas. And that Harry Gant was always fun to watch. Yeah. Because everybody would be down around the yellow line, and Harry's away on up the highway, and it was uh, it was pretty it was pretty neat to watch that bunch. Now Jimmy Johnson, how many times has he won at Richmond? Um, three, I think. Yeah, three. Wow. But uh, Jimmy said it took him a while to get used to the place and to get a good feel for a winning race car. Yeah, without a doubt, this track um, just hasn't been one that that really fits my style and, and the techniques that I use. And from the two years of running the Nationwide Series and then five or six years in the Cup car, it, it, and coming here twice a year, I, I just couldn't get it. I mean, I qualify well. I think got a pole in 04 or something, 03. But uh, when the race started, we just we weren't right and uh, for a couple of reasons. And, and I certainly learn, learn more every time I'm on the track and feel like I still have room to go here and, and understand this track even better yet. Now, he hasn't won there since 2008. Well, he really hasn't needed to because by then he's usually preparing for the chase. Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, even the spring race, the first yeah. race of the season, he's I mean, he's finished as high as third since then, but um, hasn't won since 2008, so it's been a while for Johnson. Right. And, you know, Richmond is one of Dale Jr.'s best tracks. He's won there seven times, three in the Cup Series and four in the Xfinity Series. Mm-hmm. And his first win came in the 11th race of his rookie season. Oh, wow. He'd already won at Texas, and then uh, right. a couple of uh, races later – he wins at Richmond. That was back in 2000. He won the spring races there in 2004 and 2006. Mm-hmm. In the Xfinity Series, he won the fall races in eight in 98 and 99. Okay. And uh, he won series titles that year, so or those years. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2002, he just ran the table. He won the pole. He led 190 of the 250 laps. Won the race going away and. Uh, he carried a cartoon character that was a Looney Tunes car. Can you name the character? Uh, was he Tasmanian Devil? His name is Gossamer. 
Oh, Gossamer, yes. Yeah. That was, wasn't that the Chevy Rock and Roll 400? Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, no, that, that was an Xfinity race, but that oh. race weekend. But that was that race yeah, weekend, yeah. yeah, I remember that. And um, we uh, actually have, this week on uh, our Race Car Graveyard Series, that car. Oh, okay. It'll be interesting. That's on uh, DaleJr.com. Okay, okay, cool. You know, he in 2016, mm-hmm. that was a really big year for him because he won for the first time in a JRM-owned race car. Yeah. And that was the uh, the Hellman's banana sandwich car. Oh yeah, that's right. One hundred and fifty thousand plus donation to Blessings in a Backpack, which is a charity here that uh, that helps kids who are at risk of not being able to eat when school's out or on the weekends. It helps them have food and have the resources they need to be okay on the weekends when they're not uh, at school, so they can eat there. But that was, I mean, that just drew a ton of attention. It was a wonderful thing. 2016 was great because, you know, you would think he's driven for junior motorsports since he started it. Mm-hmm. Um, all the, all his uh, early stuff in, in the uh, series was through DEI. Mm-hmm. But the first time that he's ever won in a car that he owns, at least here, was, uh, was in 2016. 2008, you mentioned that? I did. That was big. Big, big, big. And why? Because Junior got spun and then he spun. Kyle Busch. Tit for tat. Yeah. <laughs> the first race, it was in May. Right. And uh, Kyle Busch in the post-race remembered Junior's fans telling him he was number one. I mean, they're going crazy. Yeah, you see it, but uh, you don't pay attention to it. I don't know why they were telling me I was number one. I was in second place. I mean, Clint Boyer got the lead from me, so uh, they're all confused, I guess. Too many uh, old Junior Budweiser's. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> well, Kyle talked about what happened with Dale Earnhardt Jr. there when he spun him out. Well, I mean, it was uh, a tough battle there. You know, we were really racing each other pretty hard there. And, uh, you know, his car took up off the racetrack there on the start, those first couple laps, and he started running the top side. And I got my car pinned down on the bottom and uh, just, you know, getting loose down there. But, you know, it was just a product of good hard racing getting into turn three. And, uh, you know, I apologize to those guys that the, that the whole incident happened. I didn't mean to do it on purpose, obviously. It was just... You know, something that two cars got together, and, um, you know, unfortunately it was Dale Earnhardt Jr., and, um, you know, I was able to go on and continue and salvage a good day for us, and, uh, you know, our pedigree Camry was was good all day, but I believe Denny Hamlin was the class of the field. Obviously had everybody covered, and, you know, he, he deserved to win tonight, but, um, you know, if it wasn't for, for myself, you know, Jr. probably could have won or finished second even though. So did Jr. feel like it was just a racing deal? Yeah, I mean, I, it was hard racing, and it's avoidable, but I blew turns one and two real bad, so I went pushed way up the track, and, and he saw that, and he almost had me cleared off two, and I got back beside him down the back straightaway, had a pretty good run, and uh, I went in the corner. I didn't go in there as high as I'd been running. I went about a half car length lower, and I think he was think, anticipating me going in where I'd been running. I anticipated him going in on the bottom because he'd been running real tight on the apron, so we both sort of ran into each other, but... Uh, you know, after watching, I'm just, you know, don't make any better watching a replay, but I can see where, you know, a lot of people think it was intentional. I don't know if it, I don't think it was. Pretty sure it wasn't. Then Clint Boyer, of course, won the race when those guys spun, and Boyer said that was the most fun he had ever had winning a race. I've never had those surprise shocker hand it to you wins, you know, and that was the first one I ever had in my whole career. I was like, God, this is awesome. You know, it just surprised you. It caught you off guard. You didn't see it coming. Thought we was going to have a good day, a third-place run, and then, bam, you know, that happened, and uh, and we won. Tough for Junior, but, you know, those things happen. I think it was tougher for Junior Nation because yeah. they lost their minds 
Well, Kyle said that, yeah. And, and you know, they were talking about that three weeks later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the spring race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of sets up the fall race where uh, I think there was some payback. Well, there, well, there was, but, you know, after the May race, mm-hmm. Junior was asked, why not be a little more vocal and a little more angry with Kyle Busch? I don't really know, you know, I think because we're so busy and there's so many things going on. That there's things that I got to do during the week and, and my, my schedule's so busy that I just ain't got time for it. I got time to... I'm in a bad enough mood due to just the grind of the, the season that I just don't let those kind of things really get to me and get under my skin. I don't want to make an issue worse for me. I don't want to give anybody ammunition for me. Uh, you know, we got a lot of critics out there, and uh, we got a lot of supporters too, and I know they would have rather me been a little more vocal, a little more angry about it, but um, there's just a lot of different reasons just because uh, I got better things to, to worry about, more important things to worry about, and if I let that get under my skin, everything I do this week's going to be a pain in my butt. So, uh, thanks for a long week. <laughs> Are you surprised? Not really, because that's, that's quintessential Dale Jr. Yeah, yeah. And if, if he's really head up about something, he'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think he just decided that uh, discretion is going to be the better part of valor. And uh, you know what? At that point in the season, there's 25 more races. And you mentioned September, September. 2008. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it was payback time. Junior paid him back, and he said it's something that you just don't forget. I got a list, and I, it's long. I got to get Jason Keller back before he retires. Y'all remember Myrtle Beach, my first race? He come off the wall and spun me out. I was running sixth. It's like Carl said. I think, you know, you, look, you, you ask yourself, really, when you're in that situation, what would the guy do if the roles were reversed? And that's how you drive people. That's how you race people. So, absolutely. Well, it, he knew what Kyle would do in that situation. Mm-hmm. So, he just, you know, returned the favor, I guess. Yeah. You know what I thought was really funny? What? Junior was asked, how would your dad have handled Kyle Busch? Not many people messed with him and got the good end of the stick. But, uh, I don't know. I'm not as aggressive as my daddy, and he would have handled it probably a lot differently. Kyle would have been afraid of him. <laughs> probably. Like everybody else was. <laughs> well, you know, and that's that was young Kyle, remember. He was, uh-huh. he was uh, two years, two or three years in the series. He never got to race with Dale Sr. Right. Uh, I kind of wish that the Bush brothers had been able to race with Dale Sr. Well, Kurt did. Kurt did, but I don't think it was in a... Well, I guess... Yeah, it was in right. a cup car. Yeah, yeah, it was in a cup car. Yeah, matter of fact, Kurt tells a story where Dale actually uh, flipped him off during a race for wow. some reason. Yeah. Hey, that's a badge of honor. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I kind of forgot, but but Kyle seems to be more tempestuous, would be a word. Sure, yeah. Than uh, than Kurt does. Even I know that word. <laughs> Shakespeare, Shakespeare. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, Kyle would probably not have been at least as far to that side of his personality as he is now had he had schooling like that. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that the Burton brothers and the Labonte brothers uh, could not have effected that kind of change, but I think. Dale's right. A lot of people were afraid of Dale Sr. Mm-hmm. And for good reason. Yeah. Because he had more cars and more money than you did. And <laughs> if you wanted to spend cars, he'd spend cars. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, you know, and, and I don't think he would have put up with all the shenanigans, really. Well, At least in Kyle's younger career. Another memorable Richmond moment, September 2003, Ricky Rudd and Kevin Harvick. Uh, another person who could have benefited racing more with Dale Sr. And, and in watching that incident where Rudd and Harvick were racing, 
I think that was truly a racing incident. I do. And Harvick just went off. Right. Didn't surprise anybody. No. I think Kevin is more, I think he's more mellow nowadays. A little bit, yeah. But he was kind of crazy back then. Crazier. Mm -hmm. Crazier. I should say. Um, I think he likes walking on race cars. uh, Yeah, that's what happened (laughs) afterwards. Rudd Rudd finished third, Mm -hmm. parked on pit road. And Harvick came up in the 29 car and just rubbed the car. And then the crew guys mm-hmm. got up there and walked all over his race car. Of course, Kevin, he did talk to TV afterwards. Uh, I was going to pull the audio, but it, it, you couldn't hear it that well. But A lot they, of beeps. Well, no, there, weren't, I'm there, kidding. there really wasn't. <laughs> but uh, he, said that, uh, you know, he said that Ricky better watch out or something. I'm going to get him back or whatever. But oh, uh, I imagine Rudd was really afraid at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really think so. <laughs> but uh, here was Ricky in the media center after that race, and he was asked, did this whole incident with Harvick and the crew overshadow his third-place run? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's two different incidents that happened. You know, I know our guys would like to be celebrating about a good run we had tonight. Unfortunately, they got to go back to Stewart. If they're going to try to get this car ready to go to Loudon, this is kind of a -a one-of-kind piece that they just put together. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a scratch on it to the end of the race. And um, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, crew members tore a car up and it didn't happen on the racetrack and uh, had guys bouncing up and down on the roof, up and down on the hood. And, you know, I'm confident NASCAR's got the situation under control. We went in there and met in the NASCAR trailer. Uh, I don't really, I mean, I don't have a problem with any of it because I guess I wasn't on the receiving end of the damage. You know, Kevin, Kevin was, and... To me, the beef was really between me and Kevin. Uh, shouldn't have involved, you know, their crew members, you know, coming and basically attacking our race car. As far as the incident with, with me getting into Kevin, it was a racing accident. It wasn't on purpose. You know, I'm not going to deny that I didn't get in the back of him. I did. Uh, but we were racing, and for some reason, I looked to my inside and looked back, and Kevin was on the brakes at a part on the straightaway where you're not braking for the corner. Uh, I'm not really sure what happened, if he had a problem with his car or what. But uh, anyway, I got in the back of him, and it was unfortunate and hated it to happen, but that was really between Kevin and myself. What happened after the conclusion of the race, the sequence of events? Well, the race was over. Uh, there was no, from the time that incident happened, there was no, you know, warnings that, hey, you know, the 29's laying back looking for you, none of that type of thing that sometimes you, you get an idea something's going on. Uh, I understand the 99 and the 31 had a similar incident, and it didn't turn out the same results. Uh, but anyway, the race was over. The top five go to pit road, as they usually do. I went to pit road, uh, parked down there near the start-finish line. We were instructed to park. Um, st- I'm buckling out of my race car. Then the next thing I know is there's another car, race car comes up, drives into the side of my car as I'm sitting still. I mean, when I say drives into it, it doesn't, it's not like it, you know, I got a tremendous jolt from it, but got it, you know, enough jolt that it bent the side of the race car up. And really at that time, really it hadn't, I guess I was dumb. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, there was an incident getting ready to happen. And I'm still in the car. It takes me a minute to get unbuckled. And as I'm unbuckling, I don't see Kevin yet, but I see his crew members walking up and down my car like it's a daggum runway or something, you know, and jumping up and down on the sheet metal, collapsed the hood, and basically totally lost the race car. And uh, just absolutely absurd. I mean, I've never seen nothing like it. Yeah, that's what upsets me. I don't, you know, Kevin, yeah, he, he should be mad. I'm, I would be mad if I was him, but I think if he sees the tape and, and uh, figures out what happened, he'll probably cool down a little bit. That happens. You know, it's close race and 10 laps to go on a short track. you got a bunch of guys in the lead lap. The race is on. It's a dogfight. And it's unfortunate we got together. It wasn't intentional. But what happened after the race is absolutely uncalled for. I mean, I've never, I haven't seen anything like it in 28 years of racing. It was just totally crazy after the race. I'm sure, I guess it, it happens. I guess I've never been a part of it, and I've never seen it happen in a Winston Cup garage area where crew members jump up and down and destroy a man's race car. And of all people, the Wood Brothers have been busting their ass here all year. Excuse me, I can't say that, busting their butt, and uh, and finally get something that runs and it, and it gets tore up in such a nonsense way. That's what that's what I'm mad about. Let me clear something. It wasn't a fight. It really wasn't even a scuffle. We had one man. When the race was over, I'm getting out of the car, and I got one guy, our tire guy, standing there that's uh, going to help me get out of the race car. 
and then they have like 30 guys, you know, that, that basically using our uh, race car as a doormat. So as far as a scuffle or fight, there, there really was none of that. There might have been some words, hey, get off the race car. You know, what are you doing? But there really wasn't a, you know, it wasn't even close to being a, a fight breakout. It would have been kind of unfair. I, I was telling the guys and, and all the NASCAR guys, hey, it would have been a, wouldn't have been much of a fight. You got me and the Wood Brothers, and I put us all in, that, in just about everybody in the team, a senior, senior citizen category. And, uh, and they've got, you know, a group of 20-year-olds that are, you know, bodybuilders. And uh, it wouldn't have been much of a fight. It wouldn't have been pretty, you know, I can say that. Senior citizens. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, if it, if it came down to it, I'd bet on Leonard and Glenn and uh, Eddie. I don't think so. No, nah, probably not. No, 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 no. But this is not new for Kevin Harvick. Mm-hmm. It's not new for RCR either. Right. At that point. And, and I mean, look, that people race the way they race, and, and that's – that's fine, but, you know, when it happens to you, don't go whistling past the graveyard, so to speak. A couple other memorable moments. April 2006, Jeff Burton edging Jeff Gordon by about two feet at the start-finish line. XI was sponsoring the race. That was my sponsor. The last 20 laps, uh, Jeff Gordon and I were side-by-side side for half of them, and, uh, and winning that race and getting a chance to enjoy victory lane, and those things really stick out to me. And, of course, Jeremy Mayfield having to win to make the chase – he did it in 2004. Uh, Ray Evernham, of course, was the car owner that night. And, uh, man, it was a perfect night for uh, Mr. Mayfield. That's what we needed. You know, it's, that's something we hadn't had all year was everything go together, you know, just perfect all night, and it did tonight. And his thoughts when he took the checkered flag? I was like, uh, I'm still like that. I said, if I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be mad at somebody if I didn't win this race. <laughs> it's going to be big. But when we crossed the, the start-finish line for the, for the checkered, it was like, couldn't believe it. You know, it's been a long time and uh, been a long time coming. And I knew that uh, you look back a year ago where I was with this team. We were getting ready to split up and go different directions. And uh, Ray and I stuck it out with each other. And, um, man, he's my best friend now and great owner. And it seemed like everything just worked out for us and uh, got a lot of great things for the future. Yeah, I'm not so much anymore. Uh, no, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Everton said that he was pretty nervous that night. I, I honestly thought I was going to be sick to my stomach for a while. We had a monitor up there that was telling us when they were in, when they were out, how many points it was bouncing around, and I, I was afraid to look at the thing. It was about as as, as bad a pressure as I've ever had. <laughs> well, that's saying something, given you know what he did and you know, winning championships with uh-huh. Jeff Gordon and yeah. all that. Yeah, well, and, when you're the car owner and with Dodge having such a high profile, right? You know, right? You know that was that was uh, that was big. Yeah, that was, that was big. You know, it it was Ray Everham was a good car owner. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Dodge spent the money it needed to be competitive right away. Mm-hmm. And I think too that you know you couldn't have had a better pairing because Ray had instant cachet with his championships, his work with Hendrick. You know, many people forget that Ray got his start in IROC. Yeah. With the Signori family. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I can remember him busting to get all those cars ready to go race IROC. But, you know, another manufacturer that came into the sport mm-hmm. had a very, very big effect on a certain night in Richmond. Toyota. Toyota in 2013. That was probably, that was one of the lower points of NASCAR in recent years, I think. Mm-hmm. You all know the story. Uh, Clint Boyer decided to, um, well, he didn't decide to, he spun. Mm-hmm. which was advantageous to uh, Martin Truex Jr., who was racing Ryan Newman for the uh, wild card mm-hmm. in, in that, that year's chase, the second wild card. Right. And it benefited him, put Newman out of the chase, put Jeff Gordon out of the chase. So NASCAR called BS. Uh, they said that Michael Walter Bracing decided to manipulate the outcome of a race. They landed on them heavily. It cost them not only Truex's spot in the chase, 
It cost him a $300,000 fine, and it cost him Napa Auto Parts as a sponsor. Yeah, that was big. Yes, that was huge. And our friend Ty Norris, who was one of Dale Sr.'s uh, top lieutenants at DEI, mm-hmm. uh, was basically banished for the sport for a couple of years from the sport. Uh, he um, was he was the spotter. Right. For Clint. Who had a, whose arm itched, and he had to spin. Yeah. <laughs> that was the call. Yeah. And, um, you know, Ty was the uh, executive vice president and the general manager of Michael Walter Racing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's fairly high level, but Ty's a racer. He was trying to do something good for the company, and it turned out to be not something good for the company. And eventually, I think Michael Walter Bracing never really recovered from that. On ESPN, they asked Clint Boyer, did you spin intentionally? No. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. If I had a crystal ball and could have told you everything that lined up just perfectly um, the way it did, I mean, there's no way you can do all that math and know everything that happened. Well, I mean, you can believe that or you don't. Um, mm-hmm. They mentioned that uh, Ray Evernham earlier in the show mentioned that they have a monitor who's in, who's out. Right. Well, they've always had that monitor who's in and out, who's out. And uh, they knew. They knew it was. What was interesting uh, is what Dale Jr. said afterwards. He, he kind of felt for Boyer, and he was the one who kind of revealed that Clint was only doing what he was told to do. Clint's fine, I think. Um, I've talked to Clint a lot, and uh, we sort of uh, run into each other quite often at driver's intros and, and here and there. And he's he's fine. It's almost been as hard to watch Clint go through this as it's been to watch Truex to go through it because Clint is a good guy and uh, obviously was just following orders. And he did some things that were out of character and regrettable, and he feels terrible to have any involvement in it. I know that for a fact. I know, it's, I know that to be genuine. So uh, it's been tough watching him kind of go through that process too because he's not that kind of guy to go start in that kind of mess. NASCAR's a big money sport. Mm-hmm. You get another driver in the chase, that means a lot of money to your company. Right. And, you know, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. But it was it was sort of not very well hidden, you know, because how many times I used to watch a lot of short track racing, and people would, would uh, if something was going against them, they would stop on the racetrack to get a caution, come back, uh, fix it, and then still win the feature. Of course, Michael Waltrip mm-hmm. running the place. He and Rob Kaufman, Michael repeated there was no grand scheme to fix that race. We didn't have a master plan in order to manipulate the race. That wasn't even discussed in any way, form, or shape. And so um, hopefully, you know, you earn your trust, and we've disappointed some fans, and, and we're going to work our butts off to, uh, to gain that trust back. And, you know, really, I, I don't think it was a grand plan. I don't think they drew it up ahead of time. I think it sort of happened in the moment. And, um, you know, they're all experienced racers. They know how this works. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it weren't for the fact that everybody can listen to your radio communication, I don't think that they would have been caught. Yeah. And, you know, it, it also changed the way that spotters work because you can't have uh, encrypted radios. Now you can have one digital, um, you know, th- there can't be more than one. It's only spotter and crew chief and driver. So Truex was kicked out of the chase. Newman makes it, and Gordon makes it. He was put back in. Put back was, in. Yeah, right. Yes. It's funny because Newman told us that he knew ahead of Richmond there was a possibility of some chicanery. I would have hoped that we would have been able to monitor this situation. I mean, this is something that is brought up every Richmond driver's meeting. And in the end, it's like we, <laughs> we, we saw that there was potential for fire, but nobody grabbed the extinguisher. 
<laughs> and he said that Richmond was a painful experience. To me, what happened to me Saturday night is the toughest thing that I've ever gone through in any kind of racing in my 30 years of driving because of the way everything went down. In hindsight, it, it hurt that much more. Well, I can see that. I mean, because you ha- there's no certainty that there's going to be any remedy. Mm-hmm. And I think NASCAR stepped up and did what it had to do. Yep. Now, was it perfect? No. Well, but the situation they found themselves in was sort of messed up. Yeah. So, I, th- I you know, you got to commend them for doing that. Yeah, yeah. Protecting the integrity of their sport, really. Yeah. That's what it came down to. This week's feature segment is called Beat the Buzzer. It's very simple. We've managed to uh, have NASCAR Hall of Fame historian Buzz McKim come join us each week for this segment. He'll answer questions. If he gets them all right, which he always does, our listeners will win prizes. Just any old questions? or No, no, no. no. Specially crafted and, and in Funk and Wagnall's porch for, like, hours. Oh, okay. Well, or that makes a lot of sense to me. Some, you know, it's, it's in a mayonnaise jar. I oh. it's a mayonnaise jar. Okay. Our listeners can win prizes. They do because Buzz is so good at what he does. Yep. Buzz, welcome back to Back in the Day. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. I can't wait to see what this next chapter brings. Before we get started, what are your thoughts on Richmond as a part of the NASCAR fabric? Oh, my gosh. I think it, you know, it's just, uh, wow, it's always been there. It's always been strong, you know. Some of the best moments came out of Richmond, and, uh, you know, it's it's landmark. I think it's one of the landmark tracks. You got a favorite moment? Oh, you know what? I think it was probably, I want to say it was in 72 when Richard got up on top of the guardrail. Right. And, yeah, and then bounced back and won the darn race. Oh, man, that was crazy. Well, on three wheels and on fire and on his roof and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. It oh. was wonderful. That was a good one. Well, you know, Rich, that's what we've been talking about today is Richmond. And uh, let me set it up for the viewers at home um, the week before each episode. And the listeners. Uh, did I say viewers? Yeah. That's okay. Well, that, oh, shoot, I just blew the TV program. <laughs> I meant listeners. That's all right. Our podcast downloaders, our, our back-in-the-day posse, um, the week before each episode, we'll uh, put out the call for Junior Nation and Dirty Mo followers to take to our Twitter accounts, at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio, and post with the hashtag backintheday tagged with at Exalta. Of those, Buzz will represent one lucky fan in Beat the Buzzer against Stephen Ron. If Buzz gets them all right, he usually does. One lucky fan chosen randomly from that week's submitters will win a prize from either Dirty Mo Radio or Exalta Racing. So who are we playing for this week? We are playing for Dylan Maloney. Dylan Maloney. Dylan Maloney. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Dylan Maloney. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations, Dylan. All right, Buzz. Uh, I'm going to let Steve give you question number one. Which driver won the first NASCAR race at Richmond? Oh, let me see here. This is easy. Uh, now, you know, they did run some NASCAR modified races uh, early on, but uh, I think we're talking about the Cup Series, or back then it was known as the Grand National Series. Uh, that first race was run in 53, and it was won by Mr. Lee Perry. See, I thought that would be easy. Yeah, I, I was trying, I'm that's trying a, to... That's a gimme. Well, no, but I see, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, because he... he Buzz is always aware that we're trying to stump him. Right. So I was thinking to throw that in there, kind of lull him to sleep for number three. We lulled him to sleep with the show so far. Yeah, he puts so. us to sleep every 3-0 and oh every week. Um, all right, question number two. Who is the all-time leader in NASCAR Grand National Sprint Cup, Nextel Cup, whatever uh, cup victories at Richmond? 
oh my goodness, yeah, that uh, that was a real uh, real interesting thing there. Carrying on the petty tradition, it would be Richard. I think he's got a baker's dozen wins at Richmond. I thought that would be easy as well. You, you didn't. What the heck? I am not phoning it in. The third one that you get to ask is is. I mean, it might it might get us one. We should have had a dirt Richmond question. Well, I did, but it was you did. <laughs> Maybe that'll be a bonus. I couldn't verify that. Oh, you couldn't. <laughs> well, the person I would have called to verify it would have been Buzz. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay. Then you can ask the question. Then we can get it verified if you want to go that far. Uh, well, I'll try it. All right. You ready for question number three? Absolutely. All right. Question number three. Which driver won the very first automobile race at Richmond? Ooh, how interesting. Um, you know, there were uh, various auto racing venues in that general area before World War II, uh, actually going back to 1907, somewhere around there. But uh, the track we know today actually came about in 1946. One of its original names was the Strawberry Hill Speedway. Isn't that nice? Yeah, I think I think and, we covered uh, that earlier. But you know. oh, okay, ah. all right. Well, no, well, well, what had happened? We though, got into it. Um, we got into a jam. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a schmuckers. How's that? <laughs> You're just a big schmuckers. <laughs> that's, that's Ron's middle name, by at, the way. At schmuckers. The, yeah. At the risk of schmuckering up the show, let's move on. There you go. <laughs> But, you know, the track for many years was owned and operated by the Fair Board, and it was the, um, you know, Piedmont Agricultural uh, Exposition and all that. But what they wanted to do, they wanted a lot of impact when they opened the track right after World War II. And uh, they went ahead and they ran uh, an IndyCar race in 46. And probably the uh, the strongest guy at the time was a fellow named Ted Horn. And he won that race, and uh, he was like in, in the stratosphere as far as popularity and you know driver image and all that sort of thing. Phenomenal driver. And you want to hear something crazy? He drove every Indy 500 between 1935 and 1947. He never won the race, but he never finished any further back than fourth. Wow! Can you imagine that? Wow! Isn't that amazing? He and Rex Mays were a lot were very similar in that regard. I think oh, Rex, absolutely. Yeah, Rex Mays finished second like 16 times. I, I exaggerate. Yeah. But he never yeah. won either. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ted Horn. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, Ted Horn. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, interesting. You know, he uh, he he was a big uh, early proponent of magnafluxing, you know, meaning you X-ray metal to see if there's any cracks in it. Right. And for some reason, um, you know, he slipped, pardon the expression, slipped through the cracks. He he uh, he had a cracked front axle when he was racing at Decoy, Illinois in 1948. And the darn axle broke and he flipped and unfortunately we lost him. Oh. But another little uh, touch of irony, the driver who was involved in the accident with him was Johnny Mance, who later on won the first Southern 500. Wow. You're just a wealth of knowledge today. Well, he's always a wealth. Well, yeah, I'm loaded. <laughs> <laughs> With what, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people say, boy, that McKim's a big load. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, here's the my question that I was trying to, trying to get out and I couldn't verify, but I'm going to uh, be very liberal in the response. Okay. The first race on the property now occupied by Richmond Raceway, mm-hmm. occurred in 1898. 
Wow. Can you tell me what kind of race it was? It probably was a horse race because when when the track was built in or when it opened in 1946, it was set up to run both automobiles and horses. And I wonder if I'm correct on that one, sir. You are correct. Uh, we're going to give you a half a point because it was a steeplechase. Steeplechase, yeah. <laughs> steeplechase. Oh, yes. Okay. You know, I haven't steeplechased in weeks. That's right. <laughs> Every time I steeplechase, it always catches me. Right? Well, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it was, uh, we were desperate for a point, so that's why we did that to you. Okay, well, I'm going to give it to you. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think our oh. contestant deserves a, an extra prize. That's right. I think we'll give him two. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, Mr. Maloney, congratulations. So basically, you you hinted at our last show that we were going to have uh, some new things at the Hall of Fame. Uh, is that something you can tell us about this week? You know, we still can't talk about it, dang it. But uh, we did have one of the new props come in, and it's pretty spectacular, and uh, it's going to be pretty neat. A and new they prop? Should be re- uh, well, yeah, it's it's a prop. Did you get it from Carrot Top or <laughs> Gallagher? Gallagher? No, Gallagher. Yes, it's, yeah, it's a wa- it's a watermelon. It's a giant watermelon. So when so when people come into the Hall of Fame, you'll take your big mallet and just you know hit the yeah. watermelon. There you go. Yep, yep. And if that works out, we're going to try kumquats. Oh my goodness! Ooh, I like kumquats. Yeah, that's, that's a target practice thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So you'll be able to tell us maybe in a few weeks? Probably so. But, you know, what's kind of interesting, too, we have, um, you know, the, uh, the 1979 Daytona 500, which was a big turning point for NASCAR, where the uh, Kelly Arborough and the Allisons kind of got into it on the last lap of the Daytona 500. And it became, um, you know, uh, like it, it helped NASCAR become a, a national sport. Well. Sure. The last item left from that event that survives is Donnie Allison's helmet, that, that orange helmet that you see slinging around in the in the video. Well, we have that helmet on display here. Woo. So if you get a chance, you want to come by and take a look, we have Donnie Allison's helmet. And I thought that's a pretty cool deal. Neat. Do we, do we have uh, a boss relief of uh, Kale Yarbrough's face on it? <laughs> Actually, you know what it is? It's a it's a um, a plaster mold of Bobby Allison's fist oh, with yeah. Kale's nose print in it. How's that? that? <laughs> that's, that's even better. <laughs> well, Buzz, thanks again for coming on, and and uh, we've gotten a lot of comments on on this segment of our show, and then you come out very very well um, on it, and we appreciate you coming here every week and and uh, helping us uh, teach people who might not know. Uh, about the history of NASCAR. Well, I tell you, it's my honor, and I thank you so much for allowing us to kind of toot our horn here at the hall. And uh, we just appreciate all you guys do, and uh, just you know, we'll keep chugging along as long as you are. Okay, that's right. We, we'll we'll be here and uh, take our beatings like men, and and off we go. <laughs> Okay. Hey, I'll tell you what. Next time, give me questions on Shakespeare. I don't know Jack about Shakespeare, okay? Well, he was British. I'll give you, guys I'll give you that. Okay, there oh. you go. <laughs> okay. We'll do that. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. That's it for this episode of Back in the Day. Thanks to Buzz McKim, our resident NASCAR guru, for playing along with us again. And keep an eye on at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio for the opportunity to play along. Remember, history is made every day, so be a part of it with Back in the Day. Thanks for listening to Dirty Mo Radio. If you love Dale Jr., then Exalta Racing is your go-to social media account on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It brings you insider's info all weekend long on the 88 team. 
It's at Exalta Racing, a must-follow for any Dale Jr. fan. 